0: one of the things that I hate most is being misrepresented. Don't you hate that when somebody takes your words and twists them and says something totally different? Gets you under a lot of trouble. This happened to me a little while ago when I was in Idaho Falls. I attended an interfaith rally. It was hosted by a doctor from Pocatello. His name was Nahim Rahim. And Nahim Rahim was Islam was a Muslim and was Islamic. And when he moved to Pocatello, he found that there was no mosque for him and his family. so he thought, well, I better start a mosque. So him and his brother, you know, Dr. Rahim and Dr. Rahim, they started the only mosque in Pocatello. And uh, their families joined, and other people came out of the woodwork to form their mosque, and they were hosting an interfaith rally in Idaho Falls and that I attended. And I was really interested in hearing. And one of the things that Dr. Rahim said, as he was uh, the keynote speaker and he was sharing, he was sharing about some of the difficulties in the Islamic faith, difficulties in his own faith, And he said this really important thing. He said, in America, you have the freedom to assemble in your religion. In America, you have the safety, you are protected to assemble and gather together in your faith and in your religion. In America, you have the ability to question your own religious authorities. In America, you can disagree with your pastor. You can disagree with your imam. You can, in America, you can form and perfect your religion. And he said this really pointed thing. He said, this is the reason why I believe America is the hope for Islam. Because in other parts of the world, other people, other children in the Islamic faith, they are not allowed to question their leaders. They are not allowed to question their religious hierarchy. But in America, you can. And because of that, religions in America can be refined and perfected. And he said, America is the hope for Islam. And I thought that, that was so profound, so interesting. I think it's why we have to, we have to help protect, and keep safe our friends in other religions. Allow them to gather. Let them know that they are safe here, especially with what happened in Christchurch, New Zealand. We must let our Muslim brothers and sisters know that you are safe here. You are safe to gather here. You are safe to refine and perfect your religion here, because Lord knows I, my religion needs some refining and perfecting as well. And we enjoy the safety and the freedom to do that. And so I I thought, man, what an incredible quote, America is the hope for Islam. So I I decided I'm going to post that on Facebook. And I said, America is the hope of Islam. And I I quoted him, Dr. Rahim. And, And I And I don't know about you, but on my Facebook page, my social media, I'm I'm kind of an open door. If you want to be my Facebook friend, I will say yes to you. I've got a lot of people that I don't know, um, but I'm just kind of public on my Facebook. And so I'm protecting of the things that I put up, but essentially everybody can see what I put on Facebook. And one guy in Idaho Falls saw that I wrote this, and he blasted me. He sent me this personal message He said, I can't believe that you would say Islam is the hope for America. Whoa, 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 whoa! I did not say Islam is the hope for America. I said... I didn't even—I say anything. I was just quoting another guy. But he said America was the hope for Islam. And he went after me about how I can't possibly be a Christian pastor and say that Islam is the hope for America. And he started contacting other churches in Idaho Falls. And they started talking about Rick Schul at St. Paul's United Methodist Church. This guy wants everybody to be Islam. And he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And people started making websites about me. I kid you not. I lost a little bit of sleep that that week. But you know, as most right-thinking people, they saw, wait, Rick was being misrepresented. This guy, he just saw the words Islam and America in the same sentence, and he just hit the ceiling. Can we just for a moment do what the scriptures say, which is to be slow, to anger, And quick to listen? Can we just do that? The Bible doesn't say don't get angry. You can get angry, just be slow about it. I think that that's some pretty good advice. I was misrepresented. I hate being misrepresented. You know who gets misrepresented a lot? The Lord, (laughs) God. God gets misrepresented all the time about what God loves, about who God hates. That's misrepresentation. And if you ever feel like you're misrepresented, if you ever feel like your words are being twisted and taken out of context to do damage to you, I encourage you to go to God in prayer and hear God say, yeah, they do it to me all the time. They do it to me too. Another book that I think it's misrepresented all the time is the book of Revelation. It is my favorite book of the Bible, but it is a strange book. It is odd. And people have taken this beautiful book of worship and they've twisted it into a book of horrors. They've twisted it to make it a narrative to scare children about the end times, to scare us about what's coming next, right? They create this crazy timeline of torture and they say, if you want to avoid this torture, here's the words that you have to say. And for many of us, it's turned us off. Many of us in the mainline denominations, mainline just means old, we're an old denomination. Methodists are as old as America. So, and many people in the mainline denominations said, oof, no thank you. And we just turn away from the book of Revelation altogether. But I think when we do that, we deprive of ourselves of this gift of scripture This beautiful story, this beautiful work of art that depicts God's love and God's hope for the whole world. So we're gonna spend some time in Revelation. And um, I think Revelation is gonna help us become better Bible readers all together, anyway. We're gonna I'm gonna try to give you some tools as we read the book of Revelation, and these are tools that you can use to read the rest of the Bible. The first, the first tool, we talked about this last week, is that the book of Revelation. Uh, offers no new information. Every image, picture, and sign in the book of Revelation come from the other 65 books of the Bible. So in order to understand the book of Revelation, you gotta, you got to interpret it in light of the whole Bible. In order to better understand Revelation, you got to know the whole Bible. I know that's a tall order. You mean I have to understand all of Scripture? Yeah, you do. But I don't want to. Well, we've not trained ourselves to read the Bible in large chunks. And I think it's all because of those tiny little numbers after every sentence in the Bible. These verses and chapters, you know they weren't originally in there. They were added thousands of years later, right? The original Scripture was meant to be read in large chunks, If I said to you, this week, go read the book of Genesis. It's 50 chapters long. like, whoa, that's a lot of reading. I don't know. Well, in the Bible, chapters are only about a page long, right? And how many of us will read 50 pages in a novel this week easily, right? I want to encourage you, in your Bible reading, read it in large chunks. Read the whole book of Genesis this week. It's easy. You can do it. If you get to some stuff... That, that you don't, uh, no other pastor is going to tell you this, but if you get to some stuff that you don't like or you don't quite understand, don't dwell on it. Skip it. It's fine. You'll be okay. You'll come back and read it again later, right? This is a lifelong book that we invest ourselves in. In order to read Revelation, we got to know the whole Scripture. We got to read it in big chunks, okay? The other thing about Revelation is that it forces us to look for symbolism and meaning behind numbers and behind images, right? There's no way that you can take the stuff in the book of Revelation literally, none at all. And so if you can't take it literally or realistically, then you have to look for the deeper meaning. You have to look for the spiritual meaning behind it. So when the Bible says, Jesus is a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, you got to ask yourself, okay, Jesus doesn't literally have seven eyes and seven horns, so what's the number seven mean? And if the number seven means something special here, maybe the number seven means something special every time it comes up in Scripture. It'll change the way you read all of Scripture. And then finally, we are all children of the Enlightenment, we are all children of modernity. And the enlightenment, the main thrust of the enlightenment is said, said we are going to solve all the world's problems by education. The reason we fight is because we have different information. So let's get everybody on the same information and then we will solve all the world's problems. That was the goal, that was the hope of the enlightenment. And I think that that project has kind of failed, but we're still, we're still products of that. So we think of everything in terms of education. We call it Sunday school, right? A lot of times we talk about Christian discipleship. We th- talk about, I want to learn something. The book of Revelation has no new information. You will not learn something new about Jesus in the book of Revelation. It's, it's all, whatever the book of Revelation says about Jesus has been said in the Gospel of John and in the other Gospels. The book of Revelation is crafted to make you feel something. It's crafted to move your heart. And maybe this is something we've lost as Christians. The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your, it starts with heart. It starts with heart. It says feel God, love God with your emotions. This is why we sing songs, this is why we put things to music, because music moves our emotions. It moves our feelings. And the book of Revelation says, I'm not here to give you more information. I'm here to make you fall in love with God. I'm here to make you feel something. That's what I hope we do in the book of Revelation. Last week, we started the book. We saw Jesus come in. Jesus looks like the ancient one. He has the same identity as the God on the throne. And where is Jesus? Walking in and among the golden lampstands. Every time you come to church, every time you come and see on the altar the bread and the cup, the presence of Jesus in between two golden lampstands, that comes from Revelation. And every time you come to church, it's an image to say, Jesus is God with us? And where is He? Among the churches. He's with us. He is with you. Then Jesus moves into uh, chapters 2 and 3, which is the letters to the seven churches. You can read that on your own time. Don't read just one verse a day. Read all the chapters today. Um, (laughs) And then uh, we move into this heavenly throne room chapter 4, John is transported to the heavenly throne room. Anthony Falbo is an artist, and he he has a picture of this heavenly throne room. It's a little strange. I don't know if you can, you can't quite see it very well. I know this is a small screen, um, but look him up, Anthony Falbo. And in this image is the throne at the center of heaven, and there's these circles around heaven. Around heaven, around the throne, there is God's rainbow. Around the the throne are 24 elders representing the joined together people of God, 12 and 12 people groups who have come together. And around them are these crazy looking animals with eyes on the inside and on the outside with wings. One looks like a bull, one looks like a lion, one looks like a human, one looks like an eagle. And they surround the throne and they never stop singing this song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And when they worship, they take their crowns and they throw it down. The song we sang earlier this morning comes from the book of Revelation, right? John is in this scene when someone says, or when he sees a scroll. He sees a scroll in the hand of the one in the throne. Now, once again, no image in Revelation is original, but this is borrowed from Ezekiel. Ezekiel says these words. I think they'll be up on the screen in just a moment. I looked, and a hand was stretched out to me, and a, writ- and a written scroll was in it. He spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. John sees a scroll just like Ezekiel sees a scroll. A scroll comes out of the hand of God but it has seven seals. Now imagine a scroll. A scroll is a rolled up paper, rolled up parchment, and it has seven seals on it. You can't open it at all until all the seals are off of it. Does that make sense? You following with me a little bit? These seals are these bands. And what they would do if you're sending, um, if you're sending some sort of correspondence across the country, You would take your parchment, you would roll it up, you would put a band on it, and then you would seal it. You would take some wax, you take some hot wax, and then you would stamp in your signet ring. And that seal, that seal would say that the contents of this letter were valid. To have the seal on there was to ensure that the contents were valid seals had to be broken on that wax and once they were broken once they were opened they can never be resealed again you can never uh, make the promise that what's inside has not been tampered with so what we have here is a scroll coming out of the throne that has been sealed the words of this scroll are absolutely valid the seals are done up. Seven seals, right? So completely sealed up. Seven is the holy number for completion. So seven seals completely um, completely sealed up. This scroll is the valid word of God. This scroll is God's will for heaven and for earth. This scroll is God's will for your life. This scroll depicts exactly What God's will is. We pray this prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We saw in chapter four, God's will is being done. We want it to be done here. But how? How will we know what is God's will? Who can we trust to open up the scroll who can we trust to tell us what is God's will? How do we find out God's will? How do we experience God? I was talking with some friends who I love. Um, they're very dear, close friends. Um, and without a doubt, our children will start talking about God and religion, and Clementine will start preaching to her friends about Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and so then the conversation will come up, and, and uh, Jesus, or not Jesus, Clementine, Clementine will go straight to our friends and ask them point blank, do you believe in God? And it's really fun to watch my friends dance around this question. And they say, well, I don't know, you know, I believe, I believe something, and, and I really experience God in nature, right? Raise your hand if you experience God in nature. Yeah, right? I say to my friend, you know, That's nothing new. That's not like a rebuttal against Christianity. (laughs) Of course we experience God in nature. Christian, the church, uh, we we endorse camping ministries and camps and summer camp, right? Uh, The YMCA, scouting. Christians have always experienced God in nature. Thomas Aquinas said that creation was God's first Bible. God reveals who God is through creation. However, it's in a real general way. We call it general revelation. God reveals himself in a general way throughout creation. And you can learn things about God through creation, absolutely. You can learn things about beauty. You can learn things about order. You can learn things about God in general through creation. Of course you can. However, When we are making choices in our lives which college to go to what career to go into whether or not we should foster kids whether or not we should adopt kids who i should marry we're going to need some more specific revelation we're going to need to know a little bit more about what god wants me to actually do when we're talking about wars when we're talking about who to let in and who to let out we need a little bit more specific revelation That's what this scroll is. It's God's specific will for creation. It's God's specific will for you and your life. So the the call goes out. Who is worthy? Who is trustworthy to carry God's will? Who is trustworthy to not misrepresent God? And the call goes out. There's no one. There's no one in heaven who is worthy enough to bring God's will to us in a way that will be untampered with. There's no one on earth. There is no one under the earth. There is no one in the ocean who is worthy enough, who is trustworthy enough to take the will of God from God and deliver it to you and to me without somehow tampering with it, messing with it, bringing some sort of bias. There is no one And so, John weeps, and he weeps, and he weeps. Have you ever felt like you didn't have direction? Didn't know what God wanted from you? Didn't know what God was calling you to do? So, John weeps, and he weeps, and he weeps. Then one of the elders taps him on the shoulder and says, Hey, 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 there is one. There is one who is worthy. He is the Lion of Judah, and he has overcome. He is the lion. I think that the, that's the note there. He is the lion of Judah. He is from the tribe of David. He is the, the son of David. And this lion has overcome. The word here, overcome, it's going to happen all over uh, the book of Revelation. We, it, the Greek word is nike, and uh, so we get our word Nike from it, right? So imagine a Nike ad. Who's on those Nike ads? The strongest, the biggest, Serena Williams, the most talented female athlete, I would say, on the planet, right? Strength. Who is worthy to open up the, land, or the, the, open up the scroll? Um, the lion is. And so John hears about a lion. And then he turns and he looks. And what does he see? You would expect a lion but he sees a little lamb who is bearing all the marks of slaughter. But this lamb is not dead. Yeah, this lamb has been slain, but this lamb is alive. This is the power of of God. This is the image of strength in the book of Revelation. Who is worthy to take God's will and interpret it for you and for me? only the slaughtered lamb the lamb has seven eyes which are the seven spirits of god he has seven horns horns are symbols of strength and power and authority he has all of it he has seven horns now there's no way you can take this literally and when i close my eyes and i think about jesus and i pray to jesus i never pray to a slaughtered lamb with seven eyes and seven horns the Bible is saying is not saying Jesus is a lamb. The Bible is saying here is the image of strength and power and beauty. The self-sacrificial love of Jesus. This is strength. This is Nike. This is overcoming. Right? And when the lamb comes forward, and, and of course this lamb image is taken from Isaiah, and it's taken from John in Isaiah, or Jeremiah, I'm sorry. Jeremiah, it says, but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And John says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is described as a lamb four times in all of the New Testament. But in Revelation, he's described as a lamb 28 times. Revelation wants to pound it into our hearts. Jesus is self-sacrificial love. This is power. This is strength. And when the lamb emerges, everyone bursts out into song. They sing a new song, which comes um, uh, comes from Psalm, I think, 29. They sing a new song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. By his sacrifice, he has won people from every language, tribe, people, and nation. And they all come together. And then John hears millions and millions and millions of people join in that song. All blessing, honor, power, and glory belong to the Lamb. This is power. And this is strength. And Revelation wants you to feel it. Wants you to feel it. What are our takeaways? A couple of takeaways. The first thing is, I would say, how or through whom do you seek God's will? There's a lot of people out in the world talking about God and what God wants you to do and what God wants you to love and what God wants you to think and all these different things. Revelation says there is one who is trustworthy to reveal what God's will is for you. It is Jesus Christ. It is the Lamb. How do we experience Jesus? How do we experience the Lamb? Well, we read his story. We learn him and experience him through the word. We learn him and experience him through worship and through the table. Jesus is present to us now and is available to us. He welcomes you in this moment. Pray and welcome Jesus' presence here. Secondly, rethink strength in terms of bravery and sacrifice. My kids are into a lot of TV shows and they're they're learning a lot about superheroes right now. A lot of superheroes, they're really strong because they kill a lot of other people. Scripture says, rethink strength Not in terms of how many enemies you vanquish, but on what you are able to stand up to, what Jesus is able to do, his sacrifice, his love. And finally, there's a lot in the book of Revelation we're not going to be able to get it all, so on Sunday evenings we fill in the gaps. And so if you would like to join us on Sunday evenings to ask more questions, to experience this book a little bit deeper, this afternoon read chapters 6 through 10. They are rough. I will tell you that, but then join us this evening, and we'll talk about some of these images in chapters 6 through 10, and it's going to be a great conversation, so I encourage you to come back and join us for that. (sighs) Do you feel it? Do you feel what Revelation is trying to do for us? Who is worthy to open up God's will and to show you what God wants for this world? There is one. He is the Lamb who has given his all for you. So come and experience God through him.